Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. All right, well, we are in a series called The Next Step, and the idea behind this series um, is that it's just important that we don't become stagnant or complacent in our walk with God, I think, uh, but that we're growing and making progress and moving forward. And so throughout this series and beyond this series, I think it's always important to be asking ourselves um, this question, what is the next step? Um, what would it look like for me to take the next step in my journey of faith? And so we have these little handouts for you that we've had the last few weeks. We'll probably keep them um, throughout probably the life of the church, some variation of this, because I just think it's important to always be thinking about moving forward in our faith and not becoming complacent or stagnant. And so we have these things back there. We're processing through all of these uh, potential next steps. And so for some of you, the next step may be the very first step. It may be um, experiencing salvation, making a decision to follow Jesus, begin that um, saving relationship with him by repenting of sin and trusting in the gospel and following Jesus. And for others, the next step is baptism. We talked about that last week. Baptism is an important step for every believer. Uh, it's a public confession of your faith in Jesus Christ, your faith in belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again, and that you have been united with him in death, burial, and resurrection to walk in newness of life. And so your next step may be baptism and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time and I pray that you would just meet us here in a profound way, God, that you would um, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive um, the seed of your word, that it would be planted in good soil in our spirits, God, and would grow to bear fruit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, we've talked about this for the last few weeks, but Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then rose again. The resurrection is central. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear, if Christ hasn't risen, what are we doing? Right? If Christ hasn't risen, our faith is futile, it's pointless. What are we talking about? But Christ rose from the grave, and then he says to his disciples... After rising from the grave, conquering death, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. There is no higher authority. There is no one that's greater up the chain of command. All authority in heaven on earth is mine. And then he gives a command. So when, when Jesus, who has risen from the grave, says, I have all authority, I believe him. And then he gives a command, that's to be obeyed, right? Right? The command was this, go therefore, since I have all authority and I'm the one to command you, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. It's important that we understand this is a command and not a suggestion. Not like, hey, if you can fit it into your super busy schedule, I know things are crazy. 
between Zumba and, uh, you know, baseball. But if you can fit it in there, maybe think about someday entertaining the idea of possibly making disciples. No, he says, go. I have all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. And let me point out that this is the mission of the church. So whatever other mission statements you've heard church is having, this is ultimately the mission statement for the entire church. This is the mission of the church. Jesus never commanded us to develop programs or host amazing events or attract as many people as possible to our church services. He commanded us to make disciples. Now, those things aren't bad as long as they serve to make disciples, right? So those can be tools to making disciples. We host services to help make disciples. We can start programs and events and have things to make disciples, but we need to understand that that is the end goal of all of those things is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So discipleship then, many churches think of it this way. They think of discipleship as one of the ministries or one of the functions of the church. So we have men's ministry and women's ministry and teens and kids and whatever else you name it. And then in that long list of ministries, one of the ministries is discipleship. And that's not actually the biblical picture. The biblical picture is all of those ministries exist ultimately for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ. So why do we have a men's ministry? To make disciples of Jesus Christ from men. To, to take men and make them into disciples of Jesus Christ. Why do we have women's ministry? To turn women into disciples of Jesus Christ. Why do we minister to children? To make disciples. Why do we have any of the things that we do? Why do we host services? Why do we have small groups? Why do we have extra events? Why do we do those things? The, the mission of the church is to make disciples. So I just wanted to kind of lay that out at the beginning of this. And, and so what that does mean, and again, not that those things are bad, but sometimes we do those things to the exclusion of making disciples. And it is a very sobering thought to know that many churches are wildly successful at drawing huge amounts of people to church services Developing every manner of specialty programs and small groups and events and hosting the most epic outreach events and all of those things and yet still fail at the thing that Jesus commanded us to do. You can do all of those things and not be making disciples. You can have 30,000 church attenders and five disciples. That's entirely possible. And so if we're going to measure the success of the church in, in the mission that Jesus has given us, the, the, the measuring stick is disciples, not church attenders. That's good. That's an important part of being discipled and being the family of God. But the goal is to be and to make disciples. Does that make sense? So if this is the mission of the church, to go and make disciples, I thought today it would be helpful to just say, okay, what is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? What are the marks of a disciple? And today I just want to give you four. This is certainly not going to be exhaustive, but I think these are four things that would categorize a disciple. Four marks of a disciple. Number one, a disciple is a learner. So this whole time I've been saying the word disciple and you're like, dude, I don't even know. We don't use that word a lot. So what does that even mean, right? What is a disciple? Um, that comes from a Greek word that simply means this, learner or student. 
But now as soon as I say student or learner, we go, we think of maybe a college student, somebody who's getting a lot of head knowledge. We think of, of book study. We think of, of those kind of things, okay? But maybe a more modern word that would, that would get closer to the idea of disciple would have been, would be like apprentice, okay? So when they say learner, they're talking more like apprentice, and it's actually deeper than that. So there was an old saying um, of somebody, when a rabbi called somebody to follow them and become their disciple, the saying was, may you be covered in his dust. And the reason that they would say that, may you be covered in the dust of so-and-so, may you be covered in the dust of so-and-so. And And so the, the goal for Christians is to be covered in the dust of Jesus, okay? So what that means is you follow him everywhere he goes, when he goes here, you go there. When he does this, you do that. He, it's, it's, it's not just learning to know something. It's not even just learning to do something. It's learning to become something. It's learning to become someone. And for Christians, that is to become a Christian. To become, the word Christian means Christ follower or little Christ. It was actually first used in a derogatory sense. They first called them Christians at Antioch, and it just meant, oh, you, you're, a little, you're a little Christ. You're a little wannabe Christ. Well, that's the idea of discipleship. Christian means little Christ or Christ follower. Oh, you just want to be just like Jesus. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea. So discipleship, then, is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's learning to think and feel and act like him. So can you see how now that's a different measuring stick than just belief, than just, I believe this truth, I believe that truth, I believe this truth, yep, check, 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 I got them all. This is actually the following of Jesus. This is learning to become like Jesus. So many people believe in Jesus and even attend church, but they've never been truly discipled. They've never been intentionally discipled. They've never submitted to a process of discipleship. Uh, And so their hearts and minds, so they check the belief box, their hearts and minds and lives are not being shaped and transformed into the image of Christ. This is why we have the charge of hypocrisy in the church. Do you understand that? This is why people go, oh, you know, Christians are hypocrites because we profess one thing, but we live differently because there's no discipleship happening. I think it was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. It's like, then follow Christ, Gandhi, if you like him so much, you know, (laughs) right? He also said this, and this is convicting. He said, if I ever met a Christian, I'd become one. He's saying, if I ever met somebody who actually lived what they preached, I'd become one. And the goal for us then is to become like Jesus, that people should be getting a taste of what Jesus is like. We're not Jesus, okay? I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus. But we are called to becoming like him, to the process of lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus in thought, in word, in feeling, in action. That's discipleship. So disciples are learners. They're learning to become like Jesus. I thought it would be important, and I have this in your notes, because if we're talking about learning to become like Jesus or learning in any capacity, um, I think it's important to ask and, and answer the question, how do people learn? Now, this is not, there are Bible texts that support these ideas, but these three things that I'm about to give you are not like from a specific scripture. So this is just my kind of um, hopefully helpful kind of addendum to this point. But when we talk about how do people learn, I, I think three things are really helpful to look at. 
So the first is this, it's, and I gave it to you A, B, and C. A, information. We learn by information, right? Let me give you the three and then I'll break them down. A is information, B is imitation, and C is application. So I know that's kind of cheesy, they all run, they kind of were alliterated a little bit there. Um, but we learn by all three of these things. And actually the deepest and best learning I think happens when all three of these are happening at the same time, right? So we need the information. We need the book knowledge. We need, we need to study. We need to know the things that, that God wants us to think and the things that God wants us to believe, okay? Scripture says, study to show yourself approved. Study the word. We need to be students of the knowledge that God has revealed to us in the scriptures. So we need the information, Okay? But we also need imitation, and that is people to walk alongside of us, people who we are in their lives and they're in our lives, and we can see their example. Not, not perfect, but Paul the apostle says to, to his disciples, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need to be doing that, and we need to be seeking that out. We need to find people who are Imitating Christ, they're not perfect, but people who are actually following Jesus and to go, okay, I'm going to look at their life and I'm going to look at the way that they, that they follow Jesus and I'm actually going to become an imitator of that. I'm going to imi we're imitators of God and we should be imitators of those who are following God. And we need, there's no way to do that except to be in each other's lives. We got to be having dinner together. We got to be watching movies together. We got to be taking hikes together. We got to be hanging out with each other. Because you can't, I can't disciple a guy and you can't disciple me unless you see how I talk to my wife when I'm frustrated. That doesn't happen on Sunday morning. I get to tell you about that, you know? <laughs> but it doesn't, you don't see those life-on-life -life real situations, you know what I mean? We got to get close enough to each other to see each other's warts and to let each other see each other's warts and to kind of go, okay, let's work on it. Let's, let's, let's point each other to Jesus through these things. So we need the imitation piece. We actually have to be in each other's lives. So we need information, but we also need imitation. We need to be around each other. This is why you can't just be like, oh, I love Jesus, but not the church, and I'm disconnected from the family of God. That's like saying, um, you know, Father, I love you, but I hate all my brothers and sisters. Or, or Jesus, I love you, but I hate your bride. Because the church is compared to, the, called the bride of Christ. You know? Or Jesus is also called the head of the church. It's like saying, Jesus, I love your face, but I hate your body. Okay? We don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. It's, it's vital to be. And you know, all the scriptures are filled with all these one another's, right? Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Be gracious towards one another. Bear with one another. That means there's some bearing to do, right? That means we're going to rub each other wrong sometimes. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to see, we're going to, you know, uh, uh, my, my uh, pastor, Pastor Tom would say, you know, he'd talk about people who are EGRs, you know, extra grace required. Right? Like some people, you just kind of get around them and they just kind of yeah, get, get on that nerve. And you're just like, okay, I need to have a little bit extra grace with this person. You know what I mean? So they're an EGR for me. Extra grace required, okay? We can't even obey those commands to, to love one another and serve one another and forgive one another and bear with one another and all the other one another's. We can't do that unless we're in each other's lives. So we need information. We need imitation. And we need application. That is, whatever we learn and whatever we see, we need to do it. We need to actually do it. So many people would say, yeah, I believe that, but you would never know it by the way that we live. And I think it was Rick Warren who said, actually, you only really believe the truths that you live. 
If you're not living it, you don't really believe it. So we need, and, 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 and the book of James would say, therefore, let's be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. That is, if we hear the word and we get the information and we see it lived out in people's lives, but we never actually do it, we never actually apply the word or walk it out or live it, it says we're deceived. We're deceived. We can call ourselves Christians all day long, but if we're not actually living the word, it says we're deceived. So we need information, yes, study to show yourself approved. We need imitation. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we need application. We need to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. There was a guy that I was discipling um, actually for a couple years. You can hear how those people, whether you're intentional discipleship relationship or not, or just maybe that friend that comes to you and they're constantly asking for advice, like, man, I got this situation. I need to know what to do. I got myself in a mess. Here we go. And you give them advice. And you know, that's like, man, that was like the heavenly download. Like God just gave you wisdom and you gave them some advice. And you're just like, are you pointing the scriptures? Like, man, here's what you, here's what I would advise you to do. And then they, they wouldn't take your advice. And then they'd come back when things imploded further, you know, and they go, oh man, like things just got worse. And be like, well, did you do it? I Oh, no, 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 I didn't. But then they ask you for advice again, and then you give them advice, and they go off and they don't take it, they don't do it, they don't apply it, and things get worse, and then they come back and ask you for advice again. I, I, had, I had that, and then I, I finally went like, hey, check this out. Why are you asking me for advice? Because you have no intention to actually leave here and apply it. You just want to hear it so that you can feel like you've done your job about hearing good advice, and then you're going to go do whatever you want to do anyways, and I love you enough to tell you that I see that in you, and that when you're ready to actually start applying some of this, then we'll, we'll keep meeting up again. But until then, you know, I've got X amount of hours in my week, you know? I know that sounds harsh, but that ended up becoming a really important thing. Six months later, this person came to me and was like, I was really upset when you said that to me, but you were right, and I'm ready now. And then we saw some spiritual growth and breakthrough from that point forward. Like, can we meet again? And, and when you point me to the word, I'm going to start doing it. None of us are perfect in this, but man, that's the process. We need to be applying the word. Amen? If we're going to become like Christ, I think we need all of these elements to help us learn. We need the information. We need the imitation of being in each other's lives. And we need the application of actually doing it and walking it out. Okay? Number two. Spent a long time on number one, so I'm going to have to <laughs> get a little quicker. That's a lie. Y'all know I'm not going to go any quicker. <laughs> Number two, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Now, we've, we've stressed this point the last couple of weeks, but I, let me just do it again here because I think this is vital. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Now, after John was arrested, this is speaking of John the Baptist, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their net into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So it's I just can't stress this enough that disciples are not just those who believe in Jesus. They are those who follow Jesus. My whole life I believed in Jesus. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I began to follow Jesus. You see the difference? Disciples are those who follow Jesus. They follow his direction, his lead, his commands, his ways. 
it's important to note that these men were fishermen. That was their livelihood. That's how they made money. That's how they put food on the table. That was their identity. Everything in their life revolved around the fact that they were fishermen. This was who they were. Jesus said, follow me. And it says they immediately left their nets and followed him. They left everything behind. They left their income, their identity, their everything behind immediately to follow Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice everything to follow him. Now, Jesus gave this same invitation to other people. In fact, this is the same invitation he gives to you and I. Follow me. Some respond like these disciples, and some respond very differently. Let me show you some other people who had a different response to the same invitation to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Man, that sounds really good, right? Imagine you're Jesus, you're walking around, and, uh, and somebody says, okay, you're see, seeing everything that you do, seeing that you've called other people to follow you, and then he, he comes up to you and goes, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response is a trip to me. He says this, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What did Jesus just say? Jesus is like, oh, I'm homeless. Will you follow me there? I'll follow you wherever. Jesus is like, really? I'm homeless. Will you follow me there? See, some of us are willing to follow Jesus, but just not there. Not to that place. Not to that neighborhood. Not to that home. Not to that person. Not to that country. What if Jesus called you to go to Afghanistan? and preach the gospel. Are you one of those people that say, I'll follow you anywhere? He goes, Afghanistan. You go, but not there. <laughs> I'll follow you anywhere, Syria. Uh, okay, let's not get crazy, Jesus. When I said anywhere, I didn't really mean anywhere. I meant everywhere comfortable. <clears throat> right? Do you see? So some people make these professions, I'll follow you anywhere. And he's like, okay, I'm homeless. Cool with that? The implication, it seems like this guy probably, we don't know his name. Probably didn't, probably tapped out. And I'm cool. I'll come back when you're, you know, doing the mansion ministry. This passage goes on. To another, Jesus said this, the same invitation he gave to the other disciples. Follow me. But this guy said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, this seems like a reasonable request. I'm not going to lie. Okay, let me go first and bury my father, right? Seems pretty reasonable, right? Uh, except that when you kind of do a little bit of digging, almost every scholar agrees that this is a guy who's not, this is not a guy whose father just passed away and they need to have the funeral real quick before he can follow you. It's not that. It's like a father who is maybe a little bit older in age, but was going to pass away sometime in the next 10, 15, 20 years. You know, hey, the, that's really, every scholar kind of believes that that's, hey, let me first wait till my parents are, and I have no more responsibilities kind of there. Now's not really a good time for me. This was, I'm willing to follow you, but just not now. Just, just, just not now. It's just not a good time. Come back to me in 10, 15 years, after my parents are no longer around, then that would be a more convenient time for me to follow you. And Jesus has no patience for that, does he? He's like, you let the dead worry about the dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. You follow me and go proclaim the kingdom of God. 
yikes, Jesus, come on, man. Like, you know, you really want it? That kind of surrender, that kind of commitment, the passage goes on. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. It's funny he says, Lord. Lord is like, you're my master, I'm your slave, you're in charge, you're in control, whatever you say goes. Uh, I'll follow you, but, is he Lord? I'll follow you, Lord, but, first, let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The third guy basically says, let me, let me first go and say goodbye to my family. And this was likely more than a running home for a quick hug. Hey, bye guys, see you later. I'm going to go. Um, the cultural practice of saying goodbye uh, in that day, uh, especially to your family and friends, was, was it, it meant numerous farewell parties and could have lasted several weeks. They say, well, let me go. You know, I got my family. And Jesus basically says, I've asked you to follow me. Put your hands to the plow and follow me. But if you're looking back at something like, I, you know, hold on. He says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. When I call you to follow me, it's all or nothing. It's, it's now or never. It's, it's everything or nothing. If you're looking back at something that you're longing for more than me, you're not ready. You're not ready. Isn't that radically different than the ways that we try to preach the gospel today? We go, hey, if you come, we'll free iPad giveaway on Sunday. Come on, just whatever. Okay, well, you know, you show up to church, you get the, the eat. Listen, uh, we know parking is not easy here. We got to fix it. But most churches are like, oh, you got to give them the front parking spot, preferred parking. You, you walk in, uh, step on the people mover, right? And they pop a hot latte in your hands. And then you take your kids to a kid's class that looks like Disneyland, okay? And then they, we get you in and at like the sermon, the band's got to be like Aerosmith for Jesus, right? And then it's like, <clears throat> and then the preacher has to be just enough funny and just enough serious and just enough tear-jerking to kind of, but get you out in time for kickoff, right? It's comfort. We cater to the comfort. Okay, if we do this, if we make it more comfortable in this way, will you follow Jesus? If we make it more comfortable in it, Jesus didn't beg people to follow him. He said, if you're looking back at anything else, you're not ready to follow me. So the question I have to ask myself and that I think we have to ask ourselves is what am I looking back at? Is there anything that I'm looking back at going, I'll follow you, but I'm unwilling to give that up just yet. Is there anything I'm unwilling to surrender? I just finished this book um, <clears throat> called Not a Fan, which a lot of people have read. I'm kind of late to this book, but it's a really good book. I would actually recommend it. Uh, Not a Fan. The subtitle is Becoming a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. But I was struck by something I read uh, in this book, and it says this. The author says, I was reading about a strange baptism practice that was allowed by the church when the Knights of Templar would be baptized. When the church would baptize one of these knights, they would be baptized with their sword, but they wouldn't take their swords underwater with them. Instead, they would hold their swords up out of the water while the rest of them would be immersed. And it was the knight's way of saying to Jesus, you can have control of me, but you can't have this. Jesus, I'm all yours, but who I am and what I do on the battlefield, how I use this sword, that's not part of the deal. And he says, and if that was still the practice today, we might not hold up a sword, but my guess is that many would hold up a wallet, some would hold up a remote control, others would hold up a laptop, 
what would you hold up? Jesus is trying to get us to identify those things. He said, if there's anything you're holding up out of the water, you haven't surrendered it. You're not completely surrendered to me. If there's anything, you've got your hands to the plow, but there's anything you're looking back at, you're not ready to be a fully committed follower of mine. And so that's intense, I know that, but that's actually what Jesus is saying. These guys essentially said to Jesus, I'm willing to follow you, but not there, not now, and not if it costs me that. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who are willing to follow me wherever, whenever, and whatever. So am I willing? Are you willing? Whatever he asks me for, wherever he tells me to go, wherever he leads me, whenever he leads me to go, am I willing to follow him? Even if it costs me my comfort or friends or family members or respect or my home. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he requires nothing less. Those are the words of Jesus. Number three, a disciple is someone who helps others follow Jesus. Same passage, Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 18. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's kind of a weird phrase, but he's looking at these fishermen, and he says, if you follow me, I'll make you something else. And I'll actually teach you to become a fisher of men. What does it mean to fish for men? Okay, this is not your single and you need a good date, okay? <laughs> what is it to fish for men, to be a fisher of men? This is to share the good news of the gospel with others and to draw them into the family of God, okay? And then to help them follow Jesus, right? I think there is an inseparable link between being a disciple of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus. And what I mean by that is that I think one of the marks of a true disciple of Jesus is a passion and desire to see other people come to Jesus, to see other people following Jesus. I'm not just content to enjoy my salvation and go, well, the rest of the world can fend for themselves. I now have a, a desire to see other people experience the freedom and the joy and the eternal salvation that I have found in Christ. So he says, I want you to follow me and I'll make you actually become a fisher of men. I'll actually teach you to reach out and draw others into the family of God. It's like, I always like to think of it, it's like we have all of these lost brothers and sisters out in the world that don't yet know the love of the Father. And, and as we follow him, he teaches us to go and rescue them and to bring them back. Him. Now, that's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do, but he's chosen to use us to do it. He says, I'm not ashamed, Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. 
He said he's chosen the foolishness of preaching the gospel as the means by which he saves people, and then he sends us to preach the gospel. So when he says, go and make disciples, he's saying, go and find people who don't yet know Christ, who aren't yet following Christ, and preach the gospel to them, and some will get saved, and you walk alongside of them, and you help them in their journey to follow Jesus as you're following Jesus. So we share the gospel and we pray for people and we walk alongside them as they begin to follow Jesus. And let me just say this, and nothing will be, not many things, will be more heartbreaking for you than this. To invest your heart and life into people, to point them to Jesus, to help them to know his word and to follow them and point them repeatedly to the gospel and the good news and then to watch them walk away from him will just rip your guts out. And Paul the Apostle talks about it all the time. He says, I groan like I'm in labor pains just wanting to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you become like Christ. And when you're not, I'm just groaning. And nothing will be more joyful for you to watch someone, as Scripture would say, pass from death to life, from darkness to light, to begin to follow Jesus Christ and surrender everything to follow him wholeheartedly, to to begin to grow in their faith and their understanding and application of God's word and in Christ-like character, and then to reach out to others and draw them in and walk alongside them. Nothing will be more joyful than this. And I think no work is more important than that because this is eternal. Fourth and finally, a disciple is someone who bears fruit who bears fruit. John chapter 15, verse eight, Jesus speaking, he says this, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, two questions and we're gonna go quickly. If we prove to be true disciples by bearing fruit, I have have two follow-up questions to that. Number one, how do we bear fruit? So if I prove to be a true disciple by bearing fruit, how do I bear fruit? And and two, what kind of fruit are we talking about? Okay? Let's deal with the first one first, even though it's going to bug my wife. First, how do we bear fruit? How do we bear fruit? John chapter 15, verse 4 and verse 7, just before he says this, Jesus said these words, Abide in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the picture is this. He says, how does a a branch bear fruit? Now imagine a branch that's disconnected from the vine. Is that branch going to bear any fruit? No. So he says, the branch bears fruit by being connected to the vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine. I'm your source of life and nourishment and strength and spiritual vitality. The way you produce, have you ever seen a branch, even a branch connected to the vine, struggling to produce fruit? I'm just gonna, like you've seen a branch just trying hard? 
You ever seen a branch just wreck? I know it's a weird question, okay? It's a weird, it's a silly picture because no, it's, that's why we're laughing because it's absolutely ridiculous to think of a branch struggling or trying or striving in its own effort to produce fruit. What a branch does is it just stays connected to the vine, it rests in it, it's connected to it, and the life and nourishment from the vine goes into the branch and it naturally produces fruit without striving. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, here's how you produce fruit. You just abide in me. Abide in me, and my words abide in you. It will give you strength and nourishment, and you will produce fruit. You will be fruitful. So that is time in the presence of God. That's abiding, remaining, dwelling. That's what that word means, to abide, to remain, to dwell, to stay connected to, in relationship with Christ. He says, and let my words abide in you. That's the nourishment. That's the strength. He says, and you'll produce fruit. It's abiding in Jesus and having his word abide in us. It's interesting that the Bible elsewhere talks about the word of God, the scriptures. It says the word is a seed. When I talk about producing fruit, okay, many people want to, their lives to bear fruit, but they're unwilling to plant the seed of the word inside of them. They wonder, why is my life not fruitful? But and then you ask immediately, oh, I don't understand why I'm not like, producing any godly fruit in my life. Like, why there's no fruitfulness in this thing? And it's like the first question is like, well, are you in the word? Well, no. And that's like saying, I don't know why a crop hasn't come up. Have you planted any seeds? Well, no. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So Jesus says, or like a branch, it's disconnected from the vine. It's like, I don't know why I'm not producing fruit. Are you connected to the vine? Well, no. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you connected with him? So time with Christ and with the word of God is what will produce fruit in our lives. And so if we want to be fruitful without spending time with Jesus and in his word, we're just not going to, we're just not going to experience the fruitfulness that he's talking about. What fruit? Okay, now my wife is going to be happy. We're getting to the question. Okay, bear fruit, but what? What does that look like? What kind of fruit are we talking about? Glad you asked. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, that is the fruit that the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, the fruit that will be produced in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Now, this passage is a series unto itself, and maybe we'll do that at some point, okay? But the point is this. When the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he slowly begins to transform you over time from the inside out and begins to produce these qualities in us. The Christian who has the Spirit of God inside of them will be growing maybe ever slowly, but will be growing from the inside out in love. They will be more loving. They will be more joyful. They will have more peace. They will be more patient. They will be more kind. This is why the world goes, you're a Christian and you're rude. I don't believe you're a Christian or I don't need your Jesus. You, can't do that. you see what I'm saying? They don't see the fruit of it. If the world met Christians who were filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, they might go, wait a second. There's something to this. We'll be growing in these things. And I say growing in these things over time. Now remember, 
He begins to work on us. He starts to transform us from the inside out. We like to transform ourselves from the outside in. We want to make ourselves look good on the outside first. And Jesus was like, hey, clean the inside of the cup first. Right? Clean the inside of the cup first. That's the thing I care about. If you were going to take a drink from a, a dirty cup, do you want the outside or the inside to be dirty? You have to choose. What we like to do is clean the outside of the cup. We want them both clean. I understand that, right? <laughs> but imagine, you have to choose. You're going to take a drink of cold water from, from, you have your choice of two cups. The outside looks amazing, but the inside's corrupted with funk and mud and dirt and all kinds of things. You want to drink from that cup? Or would you rather have the outside of the cup look a little funky, but the inside's clean, crystal clear water? Well, I'd rather drink from that. That's what Jesus said in another passage. He said, you guys are so worried about the outside. I'm talking about starting to work on you from the inside out. That will eventually take a dirty cup that's dirty inside and out and fill it with, with water. Shh, just keep filling it with water. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to clean the inside, but eventually it's going to spill over. And what happens? The outside will be clean too. But if you just spend all your time wiping the outside of that cup, you may never get to the inside. And so that's why so many people, we look at people's lives and we go, oh, their life is a bit of a... And it's like, you never know what's happening on the inside of somebody. And fruit, I don't know if you notice this. I know we're, we're all farmers in here, but... Fruit takes time to develop. It takes time to grow. And so people come to Jesus and we expect them to be miraculously different on the outside overnight. And we're appalled a month later. They're still smoking and cussing and doing their whatever, you know, all the superficial things that we make a big deal out of. Because we want them to look clean on the outside. When Jesus is like, I'm so much more concerned about what's inside and what's in the heart. I'm starting to work in there and it's going to take time. To clean the inside, it's going to take time for that seed of the word to, to grow and crack the surface and shoot out sprouts and then begin to slowly, over time, produce fruit. That's why we say it actually takes time to tell who really is a Christian. It takes time to tell who really has the spirit of God living inside of them because fruit takes time to develop. It's easy to make a profession of faith. It's easy to raise your hands and walk the aisle and pray the prayer. That's the easy part. But only time will tell if the Holy Spirit of God actually came to dwell inside of you and will know over time how, by the fruit. I think it was George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, who somebody asked him, he had these big crusades and he'd preach and then people would come forward and make these professions of faith. And somebody was asking, said, man, it was amazing. You know, how many people became, became Christians last night? He says, oh, I don't know. We'll find out in 10 years. And they were like, no, no, no. I, I think the count was like 3,000 something people came forward. He goes, yeah, 3,000 people raised their hand and came forward and made a declaration. We'll find out in 10, 15, 20 years who the Holy Spirit of God came and took up residence inside because we're going to see the fruit that's produced out of that. So many will make professions of faith, but then lose interest and quit and fall away. Some will be passionate about Jesus only until trial or struggle comes, and then they'll abandon the faith. Some will be lured away by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Some will have the Spirit of God inside of them and will abide in him, will remain even when it gets tough. They will plant the seed of his word in their hearts, and they will, over time, bear fruit, proving themselves to be disciples. That's what he said in John. So discipleship is the lifelong process of learning to become like 
Jesus, of following him and helping others follow him and of being transformed by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God so that our lives begin to produce fruit. And for some of us, this is the next step. You believe in Jesus. You believe in the gospel. And you've begun to follow him, like truly follow him. Nobody's perfect, but when you fall, you get back up and dust yourself off and let the brothers and sisters around you come and encourage you and point you back to Jesus and to his word. And you're following him and you believe. And maybe you've been baptized or maybe you've signed up to be baptized and you're ready to go. But the next step for you would be to commit to the process of discipleship. We are called to be disciples and to make disciples. And we can't do either without the indwelling presence and help of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that saves somebody. It's the Holy Spirit that changes us. That's why it says the fruit of the Spirit. Let me close with this word of encouragement the way that Jesus closed this command, and it's breathtaking. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is to obey, to apply all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the Jesus has promised to be with those who are making disciples. He's promised to be with his disciples. As we're being discipled, as we're making disciples, he's promised his presence. He says, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so as you begin the process of discipleship, I just want you to know that you're not alone. Jesus has promised to be with you and he's given you a church family to love and support you. None of us get this right 100% of the time. Every one of us is flawed. Every one of us has warts and stuff. Don't wait till you feel like you have it all together to start this process of discipleship. Let's obey this command together. Let's not just be passive believers, but radical, sold out followers of Jesus. Let's be disciples and let's make disciples. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that you would empower us by your spirit to obey this command, to be disciples, to be followers and fishers of men and those who produce fruit and are learning to become like you in thought, word, and deed, in heart, in life. God, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Make us like you. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.